Hello, this is Adam S. Leslie, co-host of this very podcast. A quick plug before we start, my folk horror novel, Lost in the Garden, is now out and available in all good bookshops, including Blackwells and Waterstones. And now, back to your regularly scheduled retrotube. A quick note before we start, after last week referring to Percy Edwards as Percy Thrower, this week I repeatedly call composer Bob Sakuma, Bob Sakura. I'm having a right mare. I'm very fond of a board game called Sakura, and board games usually aren't far from my mind. So apologies to Bob Sakuma and to anyone else with that name. And now, on with the shenanigans. Welcome to a brand new episode of RetroTube, or if you're listening in the future, welcome to an old episode of RetroTube. This is the podcast in which my friend Heather and I send each other our favourite ancient TV shows and then talk about them with gusto. This week it's my turn and I've introduced Heather to an 80s after-school mainstay and stone-cold classic. Blake 7 meets Thunderbirds meets Gojira meets Star Wars, captured in lovingly rendered anime. It's the antidote to Hanna-Barbera, it's Battle of the Planets! Battle of the Planets is a 1978 American reworking of a 1972 Japanese sci-fi action series called Science Ninja Team Gatchaman. And there's only one thing better than a ninja, and that's a science ninja. The show was broadcast on hard rotation on BBC Children's Television between 1979 and 1985, and everyone loved it without exception. But Heather, had you ever come across Battle of the Planets before? I have not. I mean, I, I have seen my fair share of terrible 80s cartoons, but this is one that I had not I had not had the pleasure before. So could you give us a quick breakdown of the premise, having now watched three episodes? Right, well, there's basically these five... Is it five? There is a handful of orphan kids who are just, you know, minding their own business, not doing anything. But then they decide... For reasons unknown to me, it may it may be explained in an earlier episode, they are all teamed up to save Earth from the evil baddies who live on a planet called Spectra. And they are looked after by a middle-aged man with a weird moustache <laughs> and a robot called Seven's Arc Seven. And that is... That's that's the show. That's what happens. They go around saving people. They they're in a really cool ship uh, that can sometimes go on fire. Yeah, not just t- go on fire, but it sort of turns into fire. That's it. it. Sort of loses its. It becomes insubstantial, yes. which I always thought was really exciting. It becomes insubstantial and in quite an important way in the first episode that we saw. So yeah, that's that's it. That's the show. Because this is one that was always shown in no particular order on television. I don't know if I ever saw the introductory episode and I don't even know if there is an introductory episode. So it's probably not too important how they were formed. We just know that they're a team and that they're out there rescuing people and taking on the baddies and that kind of thing. 
and this was one it was always a it was always yes. a happy day when this was on tv it was like it was super exciting and i think a lot of it was actually just the title sequence and just it's so action-packed it was a very good title yeah sequence. and i love how declamatory it is and, and the the theme tune is great and it kind of got me because uh of the line always five acting as one and i get that because i'm a thunderbirds fan yeah, this is why I kind of drew the parallel because it's a similar thing of this this team and a large part of their MO is rescuing people from a sinister organisation or from just disasters. Yes. With their cool variety of ships and vehicles. There are websites dedicated to Battle of the Planets, but there are a few really detailed, detailed episode guides that are easy to browse. So there are even more vehicles. Each team member has their own individual vehicle, but I didn't manage to track down a, an episode uh, in which they break them out. Oh, that makes more sense. Because this is one of those shows where you, you seem to watch it endlessly as a child, and there are many of these that we watched where you find out later that, oh, they they only made six episodes or they only made it 13 episodes. So this seems like one of those shows, but in fact it's not. They made 85 episodes. There's a lot to go at. And this is one that I haven't really watched since it was broadcast, so I don't know a lot about it. So I, I picked I picked three episodes more or less at random. So we'll go through each of the episodes. But um, yes, what did you think generally? Honestly? Yes. Um, I really didn't like it at first. I watched the first episode and I hated it. I hated it with a passion. I was like, this is the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. And I've seen some crap. Uh, and then I I have avoided watching it again and watching the other two. And I'm like, oh, God, I just can't. I can't. I can't. I can't face it. How can I tell him I don't like it? It's one of his favourite programmes. And then I watched it. I did find, and I rewatched the uh, first episode that we saw, mm. and obviously the subsequent two. And I think I'd probably just been in a really, really off mood that day. I think something bad had probably happened, yeah. and I was trying to take my mind off things. But yeah, I think I was just in a really bad mood on the day that I watched it the first <laughs> time, and it sort of gave me uh, an unfair bias. Uh, but when I rewatched them today to. Uh, talk about i was like oh actually this this isn't the worst thing i've ever seen <laughs> this this is actually quite good okay <laughs> phew <laughs> well the, 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 the first episode that we had on that we watched was uh it's called the thing with a thousand eyes subtitled all the better to see you with my dear and like i say i picked it at random so i didn't necessarily pick out the very best because it's very hard to have a there's no den of geek article on you know the battle of the planets episode worst to best so it's very hard to pick out the three classics to watch so so um it turns out the thing with a thousand eyes is incredibly generic and has almost nothing it was pretty generic distinctive about it and uh, g-force who are our central team they spend pretty much the entire thing just sat in the spaceship in, in the phoenix they're a oh. rather lovely spaceship but they don't really do much, and it, it is, is nice a lot of kind of animated hardware. So I'm not really surprised that you didn't really take to it. If, you know, if if I'd been more on top of knowing more about it, then I could have picked one that was a bit more character driven, so you could get a feel of who were actually watching because they and they also look quite similar when they're in their uniforms they as do. well. So it's hard to tell them apart if you're not given 
more of an introduction to them. Yes, I get that. But no, it was it was fine. It was just me. I was just being naughty. <laughs> it's not the show. It's me. I'm the problem. Well, I don't uh, <laughs> know. I mean, we're we're here to determine that. All oh, right, fair enough. Because I yes, apart from seeing a one or two, uh, my friend Simon picked up on video in the nineties. I haven't really watched it since. It was last shown on TV in 1985, so it was one of my favourite things at the time. But I had in no way stuck with it in the same way that I had with Blake 7, for example. Yeah. Before we plunge into the episode, I've got a list of the episodes here, and I love the pulpy titles. And I thought I'd read some out. Please do. It's almost like found poetry, just quite how delightfully pulpy these titles are. And this being a Japanese cartoon originally like with Gojira or Godzilla as we know as we know it here in the west there's a lot of giant animals involved giant mechanical animals fighting each other mm. um, which is reflected in the titles so we have attack of the space terrapin siege of the squids mad new ruler of spectra peril of the praying mantis uh, panic of the peacock <laughs> no one wants to be involved wow. in a peacock panic oh raid of the space octopus Race Against Disaster, which is the most generic <laughs> title possible. That's very Terence Dix. Rescue of the Astronauts. Big Robot Gold Grab. Wow. <laughs> the Musical Mummy. Attack of the Alien Wasp. The Ghostly Grasshopper. Uh, so these go on and on. There's 85 of these. Capture of the Galaxy Code. Orion, Wonder Dog of Space. This is going to fill up our hour really well. <laughs> <laughs> you, you just go for it <laughs> tentacles from space tentacles from space so that gives you some idea of the, the the sort of territory we're in with battle of the planets uh a bit of background so like i said in the introduction it was originally a japanese cartoon from the early 70s called gatchaman for short and a little bit like the magic roundabout the episodes were given over to the American producers, uh, led by Sandy Frank, and they're handed over without any context or scripts, and it was up to the American writers to watch them without knowing the plot, without knowing what the dialogue is, and just rewrite the scripts based on the action on screen and what their mouths appear that they might be saying. I think that would be a really fun exercise to do. I it's think just, it like, would. Be given these 25-minute cartoons and go, here, make up a story to go with those. Yeah, I think well, that does sound pretty cool, to be fair. So there's also a little bit of... It's not quite playground lore because it's one of these things that you find out afterwards so it's sort of like post playground lore yeah. in that when you watch it as a child in the 80s you just assume it's an American show it's made by Sandy Frank Productions they produced it and everything is as it seems and then later you find out no it's based on this Japanese show called Gatchaman which is, which is much darker and more brutal and more violent and it, and it gives it this kind of dark edge to it and a bit of an undercurrent of like ooh there's something out there's another layer going on here and actually there's there's a, a much darker hidden version of this show that we haven't been allowed to see and it gives it a bit of cachet, cachet. you can actually go onto youtube and there are side by side comparisons of the original japanese gatchaman cartoon and the american battle of the planets version and you can see actually what they were originally like and how they were edited or some might say boulderized and actually for the most part Gatchman isn't as dark and brutal as our fertile imaginations have suggested to us 
In fact, it's probably on a par with Star Wars. So basically what Sandy Frank Productions have done is cut out all the fatalities. So even in something like Thunderbirds, of course, people die. It's this very light-hearted puppet show, but there are deaths. There are. And in, in the original Gatchaman, there are deaths. And there are much more graphic punch-ups. But not graphic in, like, blood and splintering bones, but just a bit more rough and tumble, really. So it's all just a little bit tamer. And also what is, what's new for the American version is Seven's Arc Seven. So everything that takes place on Center Neptune is an American edition to help explain what has happened when they've cut stuff out, essentially. Or when uh-huh. they can't quite make the plot hang together from the, the limited information that they've had. Fair enough. I like Seven's Arc Seven. He's quite fun, really, isn't he? He is. He is. He's a little bit neurotic, but I like that in a person. I'm a robot. It's essentially C-3PO's personality in R2-D2's body. Yes. Here in Center Neptune, deep beneath the sea, we keep the entire galaxy alert against any alien intruders from outer space. I monitor all alerts and forward all warnings to G-Force, that team of incredible young people. My job is a lonely job. I've never seen any of the G-Force people in person, but I feel very close to them. They're my family and my responsibility. One of these days, when I get my new overhaul, maybe I'll be equipped to meet them, maybe even to work with them. Meanwhile, I must cover the galaxy and search out any troubled spot needing their assistance. Right now, I'm getting a red alert. So you could see him as annoying or you could see him as adding, ironically, much needed humanity to proceedings because it can be a bit hardware based. Yes, I can see that. Yeah, I, I, I didn't I didn't mind him. I liked the way he kept on being all, huh, I'm not worried, but I'm really, really worried. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I need to go for another 10 second oil break. And he, he he gains more and more clothes as it goes along. So he's oh. just essentially R2-D2 in the first few episodes. And then later he's got he's got a helmet. He's got a cape that he uses to fly. I think he wears a jumper at some point. A jumper? Blimey. It's like a reverse striptease. <laughs> it is. He's getting more... He's a bit indecent, this naked robot that looks like a dustbin. <laughs> Ew. Did you ever see the Hooray for Harold Lloyd compilations that they used to show in the 80s no the voiceover man who did that uh, always reminded me of seven's arc seven here is the first guest arriving now and what do you know it's harold himself boy his mother sure dressed him funny for an informal backyard barbecue seven's arc seven is played by alan young who also did keop and he's most famous for scrooge mcduck Oh, I would never, I would never have guessed. Obviously, Scrooge McDuck is now played by David Tennant. Ah. Not that that adds anything to this discussion, but I just thought I'd say, <laughs> big, big fan of the new Ducktales. I, I would recommend it. I would definitely recommend it. It's, uh, it's a lot better than the old Ducktales. And yeah, I did go there and I did buy property, but I, I started watching the new one, and then I thought I'd watch the old one just for you know nostalgia. Yeah. And the the old one was actually pretty boring. Oh really? Yeah, yeah. So. We started with the episode of The Thing with a Thousand Eyes. Can you tell us uh, a little bit about the plot and premise of this episode? It was about the baddies. They had developed like a, a living creature that would, I don't know, eat all of the inhabitants of a planet. So G-Force were sent to save them. Mm. They had to fight the happiness boys from Spectre, <laughs> which, Spectra, which is the worst bad guy gang name ever. 
that's that's basically what happened. They just had to fight this big this big thing with a thousand dads. Yeah, it's very very straightforward, isn't it? Yeah, I can't I can't really tell you any more than that because nothing else happened. The only thing that kind of kept on confusing me was that they kept on saying that that the action was happening in the capital city of Riga, which was a planet miles away, and it's not. Riga's the capital of Latvia. <laughs> So I don't know where the action actually happened. It may have been on a different planet. It may have been in Eastern Europe. Unsure. Yes, I, I think this is this is the American scriptwriters just adding extra spaciness to it. And judging from the visuals, it does look like an Earth city. It does a bit, And yeah. I think it's possibly one of their techniques for sort of taking some of the peril out and skewing it a bit younger by having them as being cities on an alien world and not actual... Not not your real Tokyo or New York in peril. It's some alien city that we don't care so much about. It's on the planet Riga. Yes, it's fine. We're not so bothered about them. But it's one of um, Seven's Arc Seven's functions within the story as well. Is if if there is some big explosion and a building falls down or a helicopter explodes or that kind of thing, we'll cut to Seven's Arc Seven and he'll go. Well, thank goodness, no one was hurt at all during that explosion. Everyone got out fine. I am very relieved. The worst that happens is when he gets a, a bonk on the chin from being biffed. <laughs> You see them a bit at the start. Uh, you see them in their civvies, which is always a bit disconcerting because their civvies are incredibly early 70s. They have enormous striped they flared really trousers uh, and really shaggy hair because you're used to seeing them in their uh, G-Force outfits, which are quite smart and they're a little bit timeless, so they don't look particularly dated. But when you see them out of their uniforms in, in their civvies, they do look ridiculous. Definitely. I agree with that. Can you tell us, based on not just this episode, but all three episodes that you watched, can you tell us the different personalities of the five G-Force crew? Is that even possible? I can try. Um, the princess <laughs> is the girl. Yes, her personality is girl. Her personality is girl. And then Tiny is ironically named because yes, he's big. hilariously named. He's like the big guy who's got the dumb big guy voice. He's sort yes, of he got has. that. He's got that um, Dark A George sort of voice that they had. Yes, he has. The the yes, uh, the the generic. Dark A George. Hey, give me that. Weird. It rings my bell. But he's a bit grumpy, and he flies the the phoenix. Is it called? Mm. He's he's quite grumpy, and he fights with with Keop a lot, or at least he seems to in the few episodes that I saw. And then there's Jason, who who seems to have absolutely no point whatsoever. I'm not 100% sure what he does. <laughs> yeah. And then Mark is in charge, which is the stupid... I'm sorry, but if you've got if you've got Princess and, and Tiny and Keop, then you just sort of completely run out of ideas and look around the room and see who was sat with you. Oh, we'll call them Mark and Jason, it's fine. Well, were, were they just sort of like, Take that fan's butt thrown into the past. I don't even know. <laughs> Mark is in charge and very... Yes, what is the word? He's a bit earnest. He's just in charge. Yeah, his personality is leader. Yes, his personality is leader. Yeah, he is uh, very much the Leonardo of the gang, as we're talking about ninjas. Mark's distinguishing feature is that he speaks like Shaggy from Scooby-Doo. He's played by Casey Kasem. 
If Shaggy was Alpha. Listen. You hear something? Rocket attack. Take your stations and brace for contact. Full power on turbo jets. If Shaggy had been the leader, I think it would have been a much better show. <laughs> so that's that's them. And then we've got Seven Zark Seven who has a great name, and he is the narrator, and he yes. sounds like Piglet. Oh, he does a bit, doesn't he? And he actually has a personality. He's the only one with a personality, really. The person, the one we didn't mention was Keop, who does have a personality. He's oh, yes, a strange Keop. little... He's a little boy, and he's like R2-D2 without the casing. He is. He says before he says anything. Because he does the... He has a very strange way of talking. Yes, for no apparent reason. <laughs> Seats, stick shift, doot, meet up, holstery, two way TV, plexiglass canopy. Key up, to G force, I'll put trailing spectra, come in. Somebody, anybody, nobody listening. Well, I looked him up because, like I say, when this is shown, you don't really get the context or background to any of it because it's all shown out of sequence. It turns out according to the Battle of the Planets website, that he was artificially grown. Oh, well, say no more. So he's, he wasn't born, which uh, they reckon is probably why he talks the way he does. Also, somewhere it's suggested he's he's not a child. Oh. So either that means he's fully grown and he's just that's just his fully grown form, or another suggestion is that he is a juvenile, but he's an alien. So nobody really knows who he is. No one seems entirely certain on who Keop is, but he's the one member of the group who actually has a personality. As we find out later, he does it all. So they are very much ciphers. In the same way that the Blake 7 crew were ciphers, really, originally, and then it's the the performances and the charisma of the cast which lift them into real people. The Battle of the Planet crew are ciphers as well, but they don't have that advantage of having actual real people you can look at on screen so they're very generic apart from Keop. that's true so i think i think alan young is doing all the heavy lifting in this frankly <laughs> since he's he's seven zark seven and Keop. yes it's basically his show mm. everybody else just dials it in we have the bad guys spectre of course with zoltar and we also meet the, lum- the bad guys yeah, the luminous one as well yes my descriptions were creepy baddie with maniacal laugh and extravagant hat mm-hmm not the big baddie, though. The big baddie looks like my cat Bobby stuck in the TV screen. <laughs> Zoltar has a great sense of humour, doesn't he? He's always laughing. Always. He just finds everything funny. L-M-A-O. That's him. And one of the th- the things I find interesting about this is the, the bird motif that runs throughout. So all of the, the uniforms of the central G-Force, they, uh, their uniforms all look like birds and their helmets look like bird heads and they have beaks. Their visors look like beaks. But the luminous one also looks like a bird. Yeah, yeah, it does look like a, like a, a grumpy owl. Uh, and Zoltar and the luminous one are both played by Key Luke. So I'm a bit torn about this. On one hand, they have an actual Chinese-American actor who's doing Zoltar and the Luminous One and who has a, a slight Chinese-American accent. The creature of a thousand eyes is ready, O oh, Luminous One. The Federation will try to stop you. Riga has always been our main outpost for raw material. Keep it that way. Yes, Master. So on one hand, you've got... You know, the appropriate casting, mm. and it's not a white actor putting on a Chinese accent. Because that would have been bad. But on the other hand, the only non-white actor is the one playing the baddies with a Chinese accent, and the good guys are all played by white actors who all have 
much more straightforward American accent. In the same way as uh, Ming the Merciless in The Flash Gordon. He's an alien, but he's clearly meant to be Chinese. Yeah, it was a little uncomfortable. Yeah, it's not a thing that plays so well today. Uh, Key Luke, though, the actor, he is uh, notable. He played number one son in the Charlie Chan movies which I adored when I was little. I used to love the Charlie Chan movies with no concept, of course, that uh, a Swedish actor playing the central character was probably not great casting, or definitely not great casting, and all the makeup on to make him look Chinese rather than just actually casting a real Chinese actor. I had no concept of this because I was about seven, so I just loved the film. Back in the day, when uh, when you were when you were watching, there was no there was no talk about sort of diversity and, and that kind of thing, and and what was or wasn't appropriate, and things that were deemed appropriate then are definitely not appropriate now. No, absolutely, that's understandable. I mean, I've never seen any Charlie Chan films, but I saw. I don't know if you, I don't know if you've seen this film. It is one of my favourites. Uh, it's called Murder by Death. Peter Sellers plays a parody of Charlie Chan. And Ooh. when I first saw it in like I think nineteen ninety six, ninety seven, it was hilarious, and I loved it. And I love the and I still love the film. But yeah, all Peter Sellers' scenes do make my teeth itch now. As much as I love old stuff, I am really, really glad in a lot of ways that things have changed now. Back to Battle of the Planet. Anyway. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it might be slightly telling that there's there's more interesting things to talk about <laughs> than the thing with a thousand eyes. Yeah, and um, it it looks like a giant sponge. Princess describes it as a big plum pudding. So I don't know what kind of pudding she's been eating. It's sentient. It splits into a million pieces. A thousand-eyed army. So it knows it knows what it's doing, and then it it, it starts sort of you know attacking again. It turns out that it's indestructible, apart from one thing. It's almost indestructible. Apparently, according to Seven's Arc 7, it can be destroyed by a high-pressure oxygen bomb, which they just so happen to have on board. That's really lucky. Isn't it? I mean, whoever packed whoever packed up that day just deserves a medal. Also, it was a Sunday, so the high-pressure oxygen bomb shop wouldn't have been open. It wouldn't have been, because this, this was before the, the licensing laws changed in the late 90s so definitely nothing would have been open on a Sunday I love some of the 70s dialogue the particular line I wrote down was when they're flying over the uh, ruined Regan City one of the characters says it's a weird scene Creep City Creep City yeah yes I wrote that down that's very 70s I love it fortunately you'd never get dialogue like that anymore them talking like beatniks it also occurred to me that they're meant to be teenagers but they don't have the voices of teenagers they're clearly middle-aged which the actors were yeah well that's just like uh that's just like most american shows isn't it you know where like 30 odd year old people play 16 year olds yeah they're not even really making an attempt to sound young in this though particularly casey Kasem. mark sounds about 50 (laughs) welcome to beautiful riga a real paradise well one good thing it isn't crowded with campers I saw microfilms of Riga once. It used to be great. Capital city. Coming up. I felt the same about it. It was very, it was very odd. Mm, particularly tiny. He, he looks like a fucking. He five-year-old. must be. Yeah, easy, easy. He looks like he spent a few heavy sessions down the pub. Zark has also computed that it just so happens. 
the only way that they can ignite the bomb is what if they transmute and uh and light the bomb that way as they fly through the thing so it's it's all working out quite well because they just so happen to have the the bomb on board and they just so happen to be in the exact plane that can ignite the bomb so you know useful and um mark says those thousand evil eyes are closed forever which is a james bond level of call <laughs> yes yeah then it's just left for Zark to wrap up and he's very he's very made up he says i don't know if my trickatron can take all the excitement which is very sweet isn't it and he's extra excited because he gets to meet finally meet all of the g-force crew and he doesn't even know what to do yes he's never met them at this point no he says what do i do when i meet human beings do i shake hands with the princess and kiss keop or is it the other way around Oh, I certainly hope so. And then his antennae does the thing and starts wibbling. What a perv. He's he's quite a hormonal robot, isn't he? He's a pretty hormonal robot, crikey. Later on, I think she's called Susan, the voice, the robot, the computer voice on the other end of his communicator. Yeah, she has no need to sound that sexy. No, she's full Marilyn Monroe voice, isn't she? Centre Neptune control. Seven, seven. Oh, Hello, Susan. Uh, good to hear from you. I hope I am not troubling you. Oh, you never trouble me. I mean, you always trouble me. I mean, the trouble is, I never get to see you. You know, I've never seen anybody I work with. In person, I mean. Then you will be pleased to know. I have a very important closed-circuit message for you from the commander of G-Force. He is coming to your control room to see you after work tonight. He, uh, he gets quite flustered by her. His antennas go boing and stick straight up in the air. They do. They do. <laughs> Can't believe it. This is a kid's show. <laughs> Honestly, I think watching it at the time, the Seven Zark Seven bits kind of got in the way. But watching it now, I think they're the best bits. Because <laughs> they're the most fun. Yeah, I like I like all the, all of the Zark bits. Because he's, yeah, he's just sort of quite funny. Yeah, there's, there's something a little bit villery about him, I think. I think it might be the the neuroticism. Although what separates him from R2-D2 and C-3PO is that they are very low status, so they're essentially the servants, and they're they're based on a couple of characters from a Kurosawa film. But Seven's Arc 7 is extremely high status. I am in charge of this huge, complex operation. I keep watch on the entire galaxy, day and night. I invent all the amazing gadgets the G-Force team uses. And I designed their command ship, the Phoenix. So he seems to be just in charge and responsible for everything that happened. Either that or he's just an enormous liar. So I think the most notable thing about this episode is that it does have the transmute bit in. But what's good about the transmute thing is that that really translated well to the playground. Particularly if you had a digital watch. I can imagine. That you could... You could easily do the transmute thing so you could play Battle of the Planets really well. The next episode is, uh, and this one's a bit more interesting, luckily, because the characters actually come out of the spaceship and do things on their own two legs rather than just sitting in seats flying around. The next episode is Keop Does It All. And I picked this episode essentially because I like Keop. He was my favourite when I was little watching this. I think just because he was so strange. And possibly I could identify him as being closer to my age than these yeah. rather paunchy-looking adults who are pretending to be teenagers. <laughs> yes, all, all in disguise. Yeah, Keop does it all, quite a claim. Um, 
Keop single-handedly takes on the entire forces of Spectra. So I've no idea what the others were doing. Having a lie down. They were just having a sit. They were just having a butty. I think it was lunch. I think it was lunch hour. Weren't they guarding some kind of conference? There's some kind of conference going on, and they were acting essentially as security for it. Yeah, my note says the most high up officials in the galaxy are at a big gathering, and the kids have to make sure nothing bad happens. A Keop spots something bad happening, but he doesn't have time to warn the others. He, it's a Spectra plant. Yeah. So Keop has to hide in the boot of the Spectra's spectra guy's vehicle i seem to remember is it in the boot or is it in the back yes. seat i can't remember it's in no he hides in the boot he sees this lovely car and then realizes it's it's owned by somebody from spectra because it's got a spectra logo on it <laughs> because it's always a great idea if you're going undercover to have the logo of your organization on your car obviously <laughs> as soon as uh, he gets into the boot he tries to communicate on his little wrist wristwatch thing but nobody hears him because probably there's no signal so spectra of planted a bomb at the big conference thing they've planted a bomb in the vault which is a little a little awkward and when the chap who planted the bomb or one of his colleagues i'm i'm, I'm not too sure who uh, he was talking to zoltan the evil baddie zoltan says that they can either detonate it or use it as a threat mm-hmm. and i feel like this is something they should have figured out before planting the bomb, what they were actually going to do with it. (laughs) Yes. I mean, there's a lot of that sort of thing goes on in this, particularly in this episode. Yes, there's a lot of that. Earlier on, G-Force are all assembled at this meeting that's going on, and it's only then that they're briefed. Yes. Uh, Plus there's some standard issue team bickering. Yeah, I like that. You like that, do you? I'm not keen on this. It's a bit... uh... What a come down. G-Force babysitting a tea party. It's no tea party. These are all important people from the galaxy. Mind telling me just what we're supposed to be on the lookout for? Anybody or anything even a little suspicious. Every galaxy leader is here. What a target for Spectra. I'm not keen on the team bickering. I don't mind a team bicker. (laughs) So long because I'm not involved in it, (laughs) I don't mind it. (laughs) Yeah, I don't like being involved in bickering. Yeah, don't don't bicker with me, but just (laughs) let me watch. (laughs) Keop finally manages to let the others know that there is a bomb and he gets in touch with them to tell them where he is, what's happening. But yikes... As he's halfway through a sentence, he looks up and realises that he's been that he's been caught by the spectre of baddies. And as soon as he's been captured, Zoltan, or because I, I I kept on forgetting his name, Zoltan. I wrote him down. Evil baddie with the crazy hat <laughs> gives them an ultimatum. So they can either give up the designs to something, or they're going to kill Keop, which is a, a bit drastic. But they gave they gave up the designs like immediately. Just not even any kind of negotiation. Yeah. The the man with the man with the weird moustache just gets the designs out and says, "Here you go, take them." And even Mark's a bit sort of like, "What the hell, guys?" Mm. But they still they still go to to make the exchange. We have an extra villain this week as well as Zoltar, a chap with magnificent blonde hair. It is quite beautiful. It's mm. this very strange shape. A few of these kind of sub villains turn up occasionally and it's like they've come from mardi gras maybe they have i like the um the teal foot soldiers so they're dressed in these teal uniforms that with flared trousers 
and these hats with tusks and they they have very long shaggy hair as well so their function is essentially the same as imperial stormtroopers in star wars but this is five years prior to star wars but they're they're the same kind of disposable foot soldiers in these rather swanky teal uniforms but yeah some of the officers look crazy hair crazy outfits it's great yes this the, the blonde the blonde man it kind of looks like uh two really um ostentatious earmuffs <laughs> they do don't they <laughs> i want to uh at this point talk a little bit about the music okay the music's worth mentioning it is worth mentioning because it's it's cracking the theme music is by hoyt curtin who is one of the big names of american TV music composition. He did a lot, if not all, of the Hanna-Barbera theme tunes, so he wrote the Top Cat theme tune and the Flintstones theme tune and most of the others, if not all of the others. So he knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing and he, he was incredibly he was incredibly prolific. The very kind of striking, magnificent theme tune was written by the same guy that wrote the Top Cat theme tune and the Flintstone theme tune, which I really like. The incidental music that you hear throughout the show appears to be a mixture of new music which has been composed. I can't, couldn't quite tell if it's Hoyt Curtin or if he just did the theme tune and then they had other composers because there's a few names listed. And it appears they're also using some of Bob Sakura's original music for Gatchaman. Oh, right. And once you know, you can actually tell them apart because the American Sandy Frank Battle of the Planets music is a lot lusher and a bit more disco and there's more strings, more orchestration. It's a bigger sound. Yeah. And the Bob Sakura music sounds more like a spaghetti western. It's much more of a small band... Uh, lots of trumpet. I can remember now. Now you're now you're describing it. I can. Yeah, I know, I know what you mean. And once you hear the Catchman theme tune, that's used as a motif. So people who haven't seen this since it was shown in the 80s, I'm sure if they hear the Gatchaman theme tune, will instantly recognise the melody because the melody crops up throughout when they're using the Bob Sakura music and he does variations on the theme throughout. So it's, it is in, it's interestingly split between the two. all the soundtrack of the cartoon I was the the music in seven seven dark seven were my favorite bits in the <laughs> and I know this is a bit of a spoiler alert moment but yeah <laughs> a little bit yes <laughs> Zark's storyline in this episode is that at the end after the mission's finished he knows that Mark wants to see him and so he he doesn't know why he wants to see him and he thinks it's probably because he's not been functioning properly and so he thinks he's going to be deactivated and he's really stressed out through the whole episode anyway and then on top of it all he thinks that the whole gang's going to die at some point the rest of the gang are trying to find Keop because 
he's being captured by the baddies and then uh, it's alright because Keop goes into the control room uh, after he's after he's escaped from the little cell that they're holding him and he sabotages the detonator so it's all okay because Keop saved the day because Keop's done it all he has yeah basically well but then Mark off. still tries to tell him off because he's just he's just quite obnoxious really Mark um <laughs> yeah he, he he wraps him on the top of his head with his knuckles yeah doesn't he? he does he's, he's all like her I, you know you went off without asking anybody and you put everybody in danger and I'm like tough no he he saved he saved everybody so you know and princess princess says actually he used his initiative so you know wind your neck in kid they were the actual lines Yes. <laughs> and when they go, my favorite bit in this episode is when they've rescued Keop and everything's okay and that the, they've they've flown off and the two spectra baddies who are kind of like on on guard duty are watching them fly off. One of them says to the other, "Shall we go after it?" And the other one says, "I guess not. Nobody gave us any orders." Wow. They're a bit passive, aren't they? No initiative. Sack them. Sack them. <laughs> Worst guards Absolutely. ever. I enjoyed the big puncher. That's all. That was always a highlight. Yeah. Is when G Force were out of their vehicles and having fisticuffs. That's quite heavily edited. There is a comparison video. I think of that particular punch up, and the, there is just it's just a bit more violent, but nothing nothing grim. Just more fists making contact, essentially. And then at the end, Mark appears in Seven's Arc Seven segment. And a princess does as well. They both appear. And I noted down that the Americans' attempt to animate Mark is pretty lamentable. <laughs> I wouldn't have noticed at the time, but now he just looks all wrong. They've just not done a good job of They didn't even Mark. try. When Mark appears, Seven Sark Seven at this point genuinely thinks he's being deactivated and he's really worried. And Mark's like, you've forgotten something. He's like, he's like how, you. How dare you? How dare you tell me that you're? I'm no, 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 no. I'm. There's nothing the matter with me. I haven't forgotten anything. I'm working perfectly. There's nothing wrong with me. For God's sake, <laughs> please don't deactivate me. Oh my God, I'm gonna die. And uh, he's like properly quaking. <laughs> like the, there are nuts and bolts jangling and everything. If you're wondering why I came up to see you, I think you forgot. No, sir. Honest, I didn't forget. I know I wasn't able to contact you on the mission today, but I'm sure it's just a, a temporary failure. All my systems are in perfect order, and I never forget. Well, then, let's say something just kind of slipped your mind today. I may have just a slight hitch in my oscillator relay, but nothing is slipping. I'm not all washed up. Really? But it turns out that he has forgotten something. It's his birthday. And so they all have a big surprise, and it's, a, and it's all lovely, and Princess gives him a kiss, and his antennae go all thingy. And, uh, oh, little pervy robot. God love him. <laughs> I noted down that his lusty laugh after he gets the kiss from Princess is quite disturbing. <laughs> it's a little bit disturbing. <laughs> Calm down, Zark. Calm down. It's a bit Sid James. <laughs> <laughs> Oh dear. So that was uh, Keop Does It All. Yeah, that was good. 
So, before we move on to the third and final episode, a quick note about Zoltar. Okay. This is another interesting bit of Gatchaman lore that has cropped up as people have looked more into it. That in the original Gatchaman, Zoltar is intended to be gender fluid. Sometimes they are male, sometimes they are female. So, the character name is Bergkatze. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. And they started out life as a pair of twins in the womb, one male and one female, and they became fused into a single gestalt entity. In Battle of the Planets, it was always just Zoltar's sister. They wrote the female version of Zoltar as a completely different character. But what's interesting is that when I watched Battle of the Planets originally, Mm. I somehow intuited the original intention. I have this very distinct memory of seeing a particular episode and thinking, oh, Zoltar's sometimes female. Even though actually it was written as his sister in the American version. So that's, I picked up on what the Japanese version had been intending. There you go. That's that, in fact, for 1970 early, that's very sort of forward thinking and progressive of them. Yeah, again, it's the villain. But I mean, yes, but just the fact that that is possible. So the next episode I had originally scheduled was called Prisoners in Space, which is a beautifully generic title Prisoners in space but i watched this before heather and i decided that there weren't enough interesting things happening in it to warrant actually talking about it in any great detail the only interesting thing in it really was the fact that tiny is on furlough hmm. and it's quite surreal hearing people talking about being on furlough in the 70s. Yes, that is quite strange. And I don't even really know what they mean by him being on furlough because he just appears to be on holiday. But instead of that... We didn't watch that. We watched the much more lurid Space Rock concert. Yes, we did. I mean, how could we turn down a title like well, that? Well, we didn't. <laughs> <laughs> no. So do you want to tell us um, what this episode is about? Yes. Zoltar has got a new plan. Zoltar kidnaps a rock band and decides that he's going to play their music so loudly that it destroys the whole planet. That's his entire plan. Unfortunately for him, the rock band that he decides to capture are playing a gig at the time that G-Force happened to be in attendance. So obviously they're going to thwart him. Rather than just kidnapping any old rock band, he decides to kidnap the most famous band in the galaxy. Yes, the Dirty Name Five. <laughs> Dirty Name 5, which is a fantastic name. In the original Gatchaman, it's Demon 5. Uh, so quite how it <laughs> went from being Demon 5 to Dirty Name 5, I don't really know. But there's something delightful in hearing Zark talking about Dirty Name 5. I can't reach them over all that sound. And they're so wrapped up in the music of the Dirty Name 5, the most famous rock band in the Milky Way. So... It turns out that the galaxy obviously has a penchant for really bad generic disco funk. Yes. Because Dirty Name 5 are not a good band. They possibly, as well as being the most famous band in the galaxy, they possibly also have the worst singer oh, in the oh, galaxy. Oh, yeah, absolutely terrible. I've made many notes on this. And the only lyric she's apparently able to sing is Baby, 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 Baby. Yeah. Baby, 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 Baby. Yeah. Uh, not even into not even to the rhythm of the song, just at ran- random pitch, random rhythm.
just she she needs sacking. It's quite appalling, isn't it? But the psychedelic lights at the concert were great. Yeah, and you get to see um, G Force hanging out there wearing their atrocious clothes. No, I quite like their clothes really. It, I, I think it's their shaggy hair which is just a bit off-putting. Yes, a little little they couldn't be further away from the actual stage if they tried they're like three miles away sat underneath a tree <laughs> looking really bored when uh, the band disappears they are kidnapped before their yes, eyes yes they are they're taken up to a spaceship and made to record some more music which is supposed to destroy cities but actually it doesn't even really sound any different from the music they'd already been playing mm, no. but what i did like is that Spectra supply them with new instruments including a drum kit and I love that Spectra have put their logo on the kick drum head they are really really prepared for for all of this aren't they? yes I think what they needed to have done was uh, just thrown the singer off the ship just bodily just get rid of her she was awful I think it's her that's doing all the destroying well I wouldn't be surprised with a voice like that and they they talk in that very specific way that only rock bands talk in 70s cartoons 70s cartoons you dig yeah i do i do like dad hey man one of the guards is gonna dig that signal for help nah they won't tumble like cons always bang when the chow's terrible we're prisoners but we're not cons we're not cons then what are we doing locked up in a place like this hey okay eddie i'm with you right on they talk like that, you dig, Daddy-o? <clears throat> I adore Zoltar playing at being a record producer and grooving along to the music. It's one of the campest things I've ever seen. Yes, it's very Donny Kirshner. I'm reminded of the Ice King in Adventure Time. It's the kind of it has Ice King vibes. Wow, I wrote that. Hot stuff. Then they're loaded into a spaceship, which seems to comprise of a reel-to-reel tape recorder and some uh, church organ pipes. That's exactly what it is. And this flies over the cities, transmitting this music at enormous volumes and destroying the buildings. But actually, in the the Japanese version, the music is different and the singing sounds a lot more like The Exorcist. It's a lot scarier, more demonic screaming, and it actually... It's called murder music. Oh, dear. And I think, actually, it does cause fatalities. Oh, This also has one of those obligatory This Is Ridiculous gags that you always got in 70s and 80s cartoons. Their music always did rock me, but this is ridiculous. (laughs) Yeah, I remember that. (laughs) Yes, I love This Is Ridiculous gags. (laughs) It was the law in 70s and 80s cartoons that you would have to have somebody say, I always did enjoy ice cream, but this is ridiculous. (laughs) Yes. Somebody says, I don't, I, I didn't write down who said this, but somebody says, your sonic boomerang does nothing for me. I don't even know the context. <laughs> but I, I just I just felt a little bit insulted on whoever it was his behalf. <laughs> your sonic boomerang does nothing for me. <laughs> Possibly the only gag in it that works and made me laugh is... Whatever happened to soul music? <laughs> I didn't take it. <laughs> yes. So, having now seen three episodes of Battle of the Planets, what do you think? I liked it more than I originally liked it. I mean, I wouldn't say it was like the the best thing I'd ever seen in my life. Yeah. To be fair, 
but I'm feeling a lot less hostile to it now. <laughs> <laughs> Who can ask for more than that? Probably not my favourite no. of the things that you've introduced me to, but <laughs> certainly not my worst. It's a cornerstone of 80s after-school viewing. There was a whole generation of us that were excited to get home just to watch Battle of the Planets. And the theme tune is instantly evocative and all the incidental music is instantly yeah. evocative. And particularly the opening titles and all the images used in the opening titles and that big declamatory voice and the way they pronounce... Yes. The way they pronounce super. They have superpowers. Super. I can get why it was so popular and why so many people would have enjoyed it. I think also possibly it was just a little bit too sci-fi and vehicular based and not sci-fi mm. and character based for me. Because I get I get read I get confused very quickly about stuff. I'm not I'm not really interested in like flying and whatnot. Bearing in mind the distinct lack of characterization, who were your favourite and least favourite characters? Zark was probably my favourite, followed by Tiny. Right. Because Zark was just he was the closest thing because we've, we've talked about this particular thing a few times. Uh, you know that the character that you can grab onto and 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 identify with to bring you into the show i think he was the closest thing that battle of the planets got to having that yes i think so i like tiny because uh i kind of did identify with him because he was very tall and grumpy like me <laughs> and i think my least favorite captain well my least favorite character was definitely mark sorry that's quite all right i think my favorite character remains keop i think he's still yeah. fun he's still fun and weird and interesting uh, possibly least favourite character is Jason because he's just there. I really have no idea what who he is even. And there may be, I'm sure there would be Jason centric episodes where we'd find out more about him, but I couldn't, I couldn't find one. So, what's your favourite and least favourite element? I liked, aside from the music, I liked the band concert. Yeah. Because I liked all the psychedelic animated lights. I thought that was really nicely done. I, I liked the transmute scene from the first episode. Yes, that's always a highlight. I thought that was exciting. It was always quite a weird and interesting thing that the spaceship becomes fire, but they're still inside it and they're not hurt. It looks like it has a real effect on them. They're yeah. straining as if they're undergoing enormous G-force or something like that. So that always fascinated me as a kid that, like, they weren't just sitting comfortably in their spaceship. They're inside this fire. Yeah, like it really affected them. Yeah, no, I, th- I thought I thought it was it was a well done. Yeah, and it's one of those things that kind of elevates the idea to just a higher level than just being some characters in a spaceship doing stuff. That you have this sort of almost supernatural element to it, where they do become part of this flaming organism thing. So that's yeah. poss- possibly the most interesting thing about it conceptually. I think. So here's here's the big question. I I think I know the answer. Would you watch any more? I don't know. <laughs> I'd probably watch episodes with you. Yeah. But I don't think I'd take the tip to watch. Well, here's the thing. I don't know if I would really watch any more either. Oh, well, that's all right. I don't feel too bad now. I think when you've seen four, you've seen them all, really. And it's one of those things that was really exciting when you're eight, nine, ten, eleven years old. And it's very kinetic. And big space vehicles and explosions and guards wearing turquoise and that kind of thing. But actually, there isn't a huge amount for the grown-up. No, no, it's not really aged well. I mean, it's not aged well with you, if yes. you know what I mean. Like, in 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 the way that Dog Tanyan d- 
does age with a person. Well, this is what I was going to mention. So it's not just the fact that I'm too old for kids' cartoons because I did watch Dog Tanyon and the Three Musker Hounds all the way through at the beginning of 2020 lockdown. And that stood up very well because it's an ongoing story. It has a story that will keep you engaged. The characters are often annoying, but they're well-drawn and they're likeable and they have personality. So there's things, things to keep you on board. So I quite happily watched two episodes a day and worked my way through it. But Battle of the Planets really has neither of those things. It doesn't have well-drawn characters and it doesn't have a story arc, a through story that will keep you watching it. No. So actually having seen four and reacquainting myself with the series, I probably have no real reason to watch it. I wouldn't say ever again. I'm sure I'll watch the occasional one for nostalgia purposes, but I I haven't rushed out to watch it before now and it's unlikely that i'll rush out to watch it at any point in the immediate future yeah no i i I can understand that i can understand that that said i didn't hate it i thought it was really fun the opening titles obviously you saw the exact same opening titles every day when you were watching this so this is really seared into almost like my dna yeah no i can imagine that so the opening titles and the closing titles feel like they're part of me and having not seen them for 35 years it's just instantly familiar and it instantly feels like home it's like oh yeah i it's not even like being transported back to being nine and watching it after school in front of the tv with my dinner it's more like oh yes this is seared into my identity like a brand yeah but the actual show itself it can quite happily live in my memory without me really having to revisit it i have no idea what kind of a mood i was in the first time i attempted to watch it (laughs) i must have been in a shocker Uh... (laughs) i do think it's about 85 percent nostalgia yeah Thank you very, very much for joining us again. If you would like to get in touch with us at any point, that's great. We would love to hear from you. Our email address is retrotubepodcast at gmail.com. Or if you're a little bit more social than that, you can always follow us on Twitter. We are at retro underscore tube. And we're pretty good at getting back to you. Um, I mean, you know, if if you want to get in touch, you can test that theory out. We will reply. And uh, we are always, always happy for feedback. If you've got any suggestions of shows that you'd like us to take a look at, we, you know, we're, we're quite open-minded about that kind of thing. We are going to come back next week as well. I think it's my go next week. I think it is. Yes. Uh, do you want to tell us what we're I'm doing? I'm not going to tell you we... what it is. No, we'll keep it a surprise. Well, I'll give you a clue because you gave us a clue last week. Yeah. My clue is a little bit more cryptic. I will just say TFI Friday. Ah. Uh, yeah. Uh, right. Well, thank you for listening. Yes. Yeah, so it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from from him. Big Ten. This is Adam S. Leslie, co-host of this very podcast. My folk horror novel, Lost in the Garden, is now out and available in all good bookshops, including Blackwells and Waterstones. Don't talk to strangers, don't play on the farm, and don't go to Almondby. 
Heather's on-off boyfriend Stephen has gone to the mysterious village of Almondby. He went for two weeks and no one has seen him in six months. The only trace of him which remains is his voice, distantly calling for help, drifting across the fizz of shortwave radio. With a couple of friends in tow, Heather sets off through a warped, distended version of the English countryside, baking in perpetual summer, to track Stephen down, and to find out for herself why everyone says, don't go to Almondby. Author Eric LaRocca called Lost in the Garden eerily enchanting and profoundly inventive, a dreamy and unsettling masterwork. This is one of the freshest and most spiritually rewarding novels I've read in quite some time. And author Matt Wazolowski described it as like trying to recall a troubling and beautiful dream. It's like peering through a wound in the world, sorrowful and uncanny and utterly stunning. This book is magnificent, like nothing I've ever read before. Thank you, Matt and Eric. Lost in the Garden by Adam S. Leslie, published by Denink Books, priced at ten ninety nine. Look for the pink and white cover.